This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Greatest Enemy is You. And the author is Tim Chang. And Tim joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Tim. Good morning. How are you? Well, good to have you with us. Uh, this is going to be a very enlightening discussion about our personal finances, and you've got 30 years of experience. We'll talk more about that, but I want to read what you have written, kind of introduce people to the overall theme of your book. You say this, my book is to help people to understand and recognize factors causing their money problem, help them to dispel certain myths about investing in real estate and paying down mortgages. You also say this, Unless you know how to tackle tax and financial costs, you are either living paycheck to paycheck or broke, irrespective of how much you have earned. Well, unfortunately, Tim, as you point out, that wealth in this country is just with a very, very small percentage of the people. Most of the people, 95% of the people, are living paycheck to paycheck, right? Yes. So we haven't learned very much, have we? Unfortunately, most people just do not learn either at the school or they just don't bother. They hope the the, the, the world will become better one of these days, you know. And of course, you know, a lot of people just say, well, the government will take care of me. Correct. And that's what most people think. Right. Well, tell us about your background, Tim. You've got 30 years in this area. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I'm a... I'm an accountant trained in UK and uh, immigrated to Canada about 21 years ago. And uh, uh, since then, I've been uh, having my own accounting taxation uh, business advisory and uh, personal uh, finance uh, business. And over the years, um, I probably seen at least 1,000 family, if not more. And uh, I find. Most of them are living paycheck to paycheck, even those with very high, big incomes. Even and uh, they always have this problem. They are abused by the system. They are ignorant of the system, and they and uh, some of them because they have, because they have a degree, they think they are the smartest of all, and uh, they, they 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 know everything just because they can get information from internet. And this where the problem, as I see, facing most families. Well, you believe, of course, that knowledge is power, and most people, as you say, uh, don't understand how money works and how to take control of their financial future. So you've written this book, and you have three sections. You, you have one section on your money, one section on your business, and one section on your future. One of the uh, chapter titles that jumped out to, at me was, Why Paying Down Your Mortgage? is not a sound decision. Now, it seems like I always hear, you know, pay down the mortgage, pay down, get rid of the, the mortgage uh, payment. Uh, 
I think this is a question that most people uh, are confused or do not understand because um, most of the people's uh, the equity or, or, or saving is in the real estate, their home. Okay, just a, uh, uh, in fact, uh, probably ninety-five percent of them, whatever equity they have in their whole life, is their home. And uh, weapon is that means by paying that because the mortgage cost is so high, or, or the house houses is so high in prices, and uh, you pay a lot of uh, uh, interest costs. Uh, based on thirty years amortization, if you buy a house for a dollar, you are going to pay one dollar fifty cents in interest alone over the thirty years. So in other words, you are paying you are paying two point five house, two and a half houses for one house that you buy. So, and that take a big chunk of your money, and then there's no way you can save aside for your retirement to create wealth. So, you should set aside for retirement probably 10 to 15% of your gross income, depending on how much you make. And um, set aside, and uh, because traditionally, mortgage rate is always lower than the return on investment. I mean, look at 50 years history is always the case, except one or two times where, where, where the mortgage interest is so high that uh, the return on the market on the investment is lower. But generally, over the past 50 years, so you can take advantage of the difference between the higher return from your investment and, uh, and, uh, and, and the lower inter uh, mortgage uh, interest that you pay on your home. So it's a, it's a leveraging of, of your limited money that you have got. Another one of your titles uh, deals with a, obviously, this time of year, people are starting to talk about uh, and think about preparing their income tax return and all kinds of TV advertisements and radio advertisements about how to uh, deal with the IRS. And you have a you have a heading here, How to Avoid a Tax Audit. That is the, probably one of the most fears people have dealing with the IRS, right? They're going to get audited. Yes. So. Well, that's why, um, you see, there's a difference between tax planning and a tax uh, filing. I think most people, as well as they're concerned, they, they assume it's the same. Uh, if they just go to, you know, I uh, don't name any company, all the people who work uh, two or three months a year, and then that's it. You know, they are the tax planner, they file your tax. You'll be too late by the time you file your tax if you do not plan for it. That means you will not take advantage of the ma uh, maximized uh, uh, credit that you, you get as a taxpayer. Okay, I mean, tax preparer, just get your information that it's already happened for the past year and they just file it in. I mean, you do have to be a, 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 a tax planner or accountant to, to, to file tax. Anybody is not licensed, anybody can file tax. Okay, so you're not enjoying the, the, the benefit that you should, that should be accrued to you as a taxpayer given the various credit deduction that's entitled. And, and now reason is, uh, if you go to a proper financial uh, tax uh, professionals like in the state, a CPA in the in Canada is a CA, CMA, a CDA. So what it does is uh, they will they will they will uh, make sure that your information doesn't trigger a audit. Two years of experience, anything that doesn't make sense, they will not put that in. And then you trigger audit, then you know often not you have problems. 
because you are missing some information or you you overclaim on certain thing or and even though you could have missed out a lot of credit but because of some some mistake in in your filing by the, either file by yourself or tax normal tax preparers you end up paying for something uh, 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 that you make mistake on but while forgoing the credit that you are entitled well, thank you for that explanation. Let's uh, talk about, which is, like you say, uh, we need to learn how to save and, and invest our savings. Uh, you have a top nine retirement savings tips. Why don't you give a few of those? Well, in, in the case of uh, Americans, I think it's for, uh, 401k, right? Right. Yeah, in the case of Canada, it's RSP. So, because that is very important, because this deduction will be deducted. Whatever is set aside is deducted against your marginal, highest marginal tax bracket. So, uh, on average, Canadian or American probably pay about thirty percent in income tax to the government. So that means just we are looking at the the top marginal tax bracket. We are talking about every dollar you put in, you get. 30 cents back right away, which can be used to pay off your credit card, which can be used to reinvest, you know, rather than, so now you are using the tax refund to pay for all these things that you have not anticipated for and it's, uh, to, to catch, catch up on your investment for retirement. Another point is to contribute early to your retirement saving plan because procrastination is very costly. The sooner you contribute to your uh, uh, 401k or RSP in the case of Canada, the sooner the money can start working for you on the tax deferred basis and uh, the sooner you have your tax refunds. I mean, the, because money compounded, okay, uh, based on if a simple calculator use a rule of 72, basically is how fast your money double. All right. So in this case, the longer you wait, the the more the more amount you got to put in in the later years to 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 achieve the same uh, investment goal. So number one is do not procrastinate. Make it make it a habit. habit. Okay. That's why it's so important to train uh, our young people, even as teenagers. Correct. And this is what I did to my kids. You know, they, they started working, they said they started right away. And uh, in fact, uh, I told them, well, 15% of your gross income should be enough. They say, hey, I have more. I can put 30%. Of course, they can do that because they live at home, right? <laughs> right, right. Oh, okay. Yes. yes. And our tips is. Uh, Reduce taxes you held by your employer. You see, what happened is uh, you should not allow the employer to deduct too much because some of you have uh, uh, the spouse not working and uh, some of you have uh, uh, other commitment that you reduce your, 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 your taxes because every money that is uh, withdrawal is basically uh, uh, giving a free money to the government. Okay, only when at the, uh, in come to April or March, when you file your tax, then you get the money back. Why give to the government free money when right. you can use it to contribute yourself to investment, okay, or pay off your credit card, whatever. Exactly. Okay? Yes, yes. And then and the government's holding the money, using it for what they want to do. And you are paying your credit card interest. <laughs> okay. Seek the advice of tax accountant. Again, not every accountant are tax accountant, just like not every doctor is a heart surgeon. 
Okay, look for tax accountant, whether it's a CPA, not every CPA is a tax accountant, same uh -huh. thing with the Canadian destinations. And, uh, you know, always consult them on tax planning, what you can do before the tax uh, filing time, as I mentioned earlier, because by then it's too late. Okay, and uh, beside the the, uh, the retirement saving, there is uh, approved by the government. It should also put into non-registered investment. That because uh, even though most traditionally people think, oh, I should invest is, uh, in in uh, other investment, uh, they, they will be taxed because uh, non-registered the the income will be taxed, but. There's a lot of new investment vehicles that you can defer the the uh, income on this non-registered investment to to uh, uh, various vehicles where everything is deferred. You work exactly uh, like RSP uh, or 401k, uh, and also it has advantage that if you decide to trigger a sales of your investment, to that is considered as capital gain. Whether it's in the state or in Canada, capital gain is uh, one of the best uh, lower rate of uh, uh, tax on the on the gain than normal income. Say, for example, your term deposit or guarantee investment certificate is 100% tax at your marginal tax rate. Whereas, whereas the capital gain is tax at in the case of Canada, 50%. In the state, probably there are certain exemptions. Uh, anyway, uh, it's again tax very low. All right. So it's always, always go on the lowest tax rate of investment. Well, your message is clear. You say bankers and tax people take away up to 70% of your income, so you have to learn how to manage them. So you're not Correct. working for them. You're not working yes. for them. Yeah, you see, what happened is, as I say, 30% of your income on average go to the taxman. Whether you like it or not, that's gone. Okay? And this how you reduce the, the, the tax you pay. Right. That will save you. And then the banker's job is to make distribute the wealth from you to their shareholders. Right. You understand? They are not like a, uh, it's a distribution, you know, I mean, they'll, they'll try to encourage you to put in the low in, uh, return, like guarantee investment fund and all, all this, all this, uh, that hardly, whose return hardly match the rate of inflation. So you are losing money. You're talking about negative return for the rest of your life. Well, right and why they take your money to lend you out as a credit card, uh, credit card interest of uh, eighteen, nineteen percent plus penalty, and up twenty percent or more. Uh, while they are paying you probably right now one percent to two percent, and right. of that fifty, uh, uh, you are taxed at the maximum uh, bracket, which is in the case of Canada is fifty percent. Uh, you so, have you have on your website a video, uh, the banker and taxman. Correct, because unless and until you know how to manage these two devils, you are going to be broke, period. <laughs> yeah. Because they'll take so much of your money, you take so much oxygen out of your life that you give up. And give us that uh, website. Uh, it's uh, com. And then you also have a website, dignifiedretirement.com. Yes, they're talking about estate planning, uh, I mean, 
financial planning, how to minimize your tax when you pass away, and how to enhance and preserve your your wealth to the next generations. I mean, I have a doctor who is uh, 75 years old, he's well-educated, and uh, one day he was playing golf with his buddy, and the buddy said, hey, do you know that if you kick the bucket, you're going to pay a lot of taxes? You know what his reply? God damn it, I've been paying taxes for my whole life in this country, and they still want to tax me? And he thought that his friend doesn't know he's talking nonsense, you know. He called his lawyer, lawyer said, yes, you better consult a tax accountant. And they came to me, and he repeated the same thing, God damn it, you know. I said, yes, unfortunately, you can damn all you want, but that is a fact of life. Right. And you are talking about people, I, mean, I have another an client, say, 86 years old. I mean, uh, he had 36 properties. That if he passed away, the tax is something like $4 million. And uh, he could not believe it. He said, all my, my rental income, because we pay mortgages and all this, uh, there's no income. Why should I pay tax? I said, well, unfortunately, there's a big gate on all your property on average bought 40 years ago. I mean, one property bought for 10000 and now it's a commercial, zone commercial worth $2 million. Imagine the government will tax you on, in the case of Canada, it's 50% of the gain of $1.95 million. Wow. My goodness. So, a lot of people just not aware. Right, they just don't know. Well, yes, they just yeah. don't know. Yeah, I mean, just don't know. You know, they say no. I, uh, the only thing is, oh, I already have my will. This property gift by this son, right. uh, these children. They don't understand. Is estate planning, uh, tax planning, is nothing to do with will. We will just a, a waker. You know, it, it right. just allocate where the property go. But the tax problem has not been resolved. Well, Tim, we want to thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. The greatest enemy is you. Uh, all who are listening can get the book at iUniverse.com or at your local retail bookstore or online. You can uh, order The Greatest Enemy is You. Tim, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight. Problems and solutions. Capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. 
Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Conversations with My Son, A Diary. And the authors are Terry Ann Fisher and Troy Michaels. Hello, Terry. Hi, Steve. Good to have you with us on iUniverse Radio. We appreciate this very sobering and yet very real discussion about the passing of your son, Troy, after uh, how many years of suffering did he go through with AIDS? Well, first of all, this isn't an AIDS book. Uh, It's only mentioned a couple times in here. But it was probably from the time that he told me until the time that he died, it was about six years. So you saw him just continually just go downhill for six years, which obviously is a very rough journey. Well, actually, I didn't. He didn't live here. He worked, actually, um, until... The day he went in the hospital, he only went in the hospital once that I know of, and he worked every day, and he was getting ready to, or he went into the doctor's office for his regular checkup, or maybe he went in for an extra one, and the doctor says, you need to go to the hospital, and then he progressively got worse that I could see. We did see each other periodically uh, a couple times a year. He lived in other cities from where I lived. Uh, he was able to live in Hawaii and L.A. and San Francisco and Chicago, and so he was able to he was able to move around, which he liked to do. And he worked in the hotel industry and reservations office, and then worked for a public utilities company in Chicago. So I would only see him periodically. And I'll be honest with you, when I saw him the last time when he came to visit before he went in the hospital, um, I guess I just blanked out how he looked because I knew he was ill, obviously, but there's things people don't admit to each other or to themselves, and I think that was one of them. I knew he was sick, but I didn't realize how sick it was. he was, and that was a couple months before he went into the hospital. Well, you want everyone to take away from your book uh, some very special thoughts and principles. You say this, that most important thing in a dying situation is love between the terminally ill patient and the caregiver, whether the caregiver is his family member, friend, or professional. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you Um, call it a love feast. You know, and people are going to laugh at that, and they're going to think, wow, she's really weird. But I think that that's true. It's the one time when we can actually admit to each other, other than when a child is a baby, that we really love each other, and we're there to care for them. I mean, that's whole survivor role is to care for that terminally ill patient. And there should be love there because as scary as it is to all of us, our job, if you want to call it a job, is to help them 
pass from this life to the other life. And that's just so important. I don't think anyone can say how important that is, and I'm sure it's just important to the terminally ill patient as it is to us. We don't want to look back with regrets in our life of what we could have done to help them. And if we can express that love and caring for the terminally ill patient, I think that's probably the greatest thing that we can do for them, whether it's to sit there and hold their hand or to talk to them. Uh, That's one thing, too, I want to bring up before I forget, is about talking to to our loved ones and to our friends. and we can forget a lot. So what I, when, one of the things I suggest to people is taking scrapbooks in um, when we visit. And even if the person is lying there and we don't know that they're responding, we don't know that they can't hear. I've spoken to people who uh, have said or their loved ones have said that uh, the person, even though they weren't dying at the time, let's say that somebody was coming out of a a coma or, or medical situation, that even though they had their eyes closed, that they could still hear. Uh, so we need to be careful, too, that we're not being too depressive about them. And um, we can say at the time that we love them and we care for them, but I suggest using scrapbooks, looking at pictures, saying, oh, remember the time that we went here and, and we had candy or we had cotton candy or we took a ride or we just walked through the field and looked at flowers or whatever it happened. Um, if we can use these things as remembrances to talk to the dying patient about, I think that that would be very comforting to them. When did you decide to write this diary? What, what prompted you to do that? Well, what prompted me was his dying. Um, I wanted to give him a goal so that he could feel that he just wasn't terminally ill and he was going to die and that was it. I, he's always wanted to help people, and he has helped people. He had a lot of friends that contacted me while he was dying and after he died. And so I know that there were a lot of people that liked him and cared about him. So I wanted to give him something that he could feel was a goal. And so he knew I was uh, taping for a while. He knew that I was writing for a while, uh, doing both, you know, in order to write down the the actual real words that we were saying. And strangely enough, what's happened after that, as I have gone through writing the book, you know, compiling it so that it could be published, was that I realized that in a way I was using it for a buffer, that I could at the same time emotionally be involved with caring for him. Uh, It was kind of a buffer to me because I was writing what was happening down so i had to use it from a different you know this whole experience from a different perspective it didn't help me feel any less sad but i think uh it helped and i think it helped him i think it and he didn't state it but i then i think that he would feel that there was something that's going to live of him afterwards well, the book starts out with a entry from Troy, your son, uh, on December 4th. No year is given. And then the next chapter, we're at Sunday, October 11th, the following year. Why no year dates? I want it to be a timeless book. You know, um, even I would go into a store, and if I, didn't, if I saw a date in something, um, 
I would say, ooh, I don't know if I want to read this because it's old. And old varies with the, with the person that picks it up. Old could be 100 years. Old could be yesterday. Old could be old news, you know, that kind of thing. And I wanted people to understand that this can be, I hesitate to use the word useful, but let's say helpful to them anytime in the future. We're always dying. Someone, someplace is dying right now. And there may be people out there that, that need the consolation that hopefully the book will give them that is scary. And I use this word a lot because it is a scary time that this book is going to help them. So I didn't want to, to date it. I wanted to make it timeless. And as you say, uh, the book is to help people realize that it's okay to be scared. Sure it is. It is, because what else are you going to be doing? I mean, in a time like this, you're, you're losing your best friend, you're losing your parent, you're losing a child, you're losing somebody that you know. I mean, I was scared even when one of my friends died, when I would go to see her because I wanted her to to be comfortable, and I knew she was doing something that I wasn't going to be doing right now, and I didn't want her to be afraid, but at the same time, it's that, I think it's an instinctive fear, perhaps, I don't know, but I think fear is a very normal feeling. And in fact, there's people that have been afraid to read my book, and I didn't understand that at first. Uh, because I thought it was something that it would help everybody. But time's passed, and I've come to understand that they can be, um, you know, scared to read, even read the book, even though it hasn't happened to them. But I really think that sometimes we can be called to do very frightening things for the people that we love. And, and our, the book that Troy and I wrote is to encourage others to know that these things to help these people be comfortable as possible. And we wrote it so that the book is to give people hope, and hope can come in many forms. And so, yes, I think scary is is the normal word, and people don't always realize that. On that December 4th, that first entry in the book, where he told you, I guess for the first time, that he was dying? No. That wasn't? No. Okay. Uh, we had discussed it all the time. Um, after he told me the first time, we discussed it. Um, we were very open about it. We didn't always say, I love you. You know, that didn't really come until the end where we said it more because it was an encouraging, comforting word. Love really is a comforting word. And, um, but I put that in there because it expressed to me how he probably felt. It was probably the most concise thing that he wrote me that really conveyed his own feelings. I mean, he, he wrote other things, of course, but to me that was the one that really conveyed it the best. So the book is filled with entries in what you called a diary from, from yourself and from him. Yes, real time. Just like you and I are talking now, and I would be taking notes or writing down what you said. Yes, that was how we did it. Was there any point in this continuum of 
of communication that something really startled you or really uh, uh, calmed you? Something that was, you know, from what the, what he had said, or I mean, is there something of real? Uh, strategic for lack of a better word at this moment uh something that was just meant so much or was so startling to you not really i mean that may sound strange but uh, if i had time to think about it perhaps after the interview i'll go darn <laughs> you know <laughs> why didn't i think of that but um well it sounded like it was a very calming process this whole uh communication exercise if you will of the two of you of course talking a lot and but here it is in written form that you could go back over it and, and think about it yourself mm-hmm. it um yes it was there's uh, i remember and i haven't read it for a while um i worked very hard on this to to make it easy to read for the the people that i wanted to get it out to and so um, but one thing I remember that I said in there was I couldn't breathe. It was like I was holding my breath the whole time. And it was not, perhaps it was more calming when I was reading it and working on it, you know, to get it ready to be published. But at the time, it it wasn't. It really, you know, it was just like I was holding my breath the whole time. And I don't remember when I finally took a breath, you know, and thought, Thank goodness that's over. No, I never felt that. So there's never enough hugs. There's never enough tears. There's never enough I love you. And there's even, there's never enough laughing. Absolutely. That's needed, too. You know, one of the things about going back and using scrapbooks and looking at the pictures and talking to the terminal patient um, about is there's funny things that happen in our lives. Now, I'll be honest, right now, I can't think of anything that's funny that's happened in my life lately, but I know there is, because I try to see humor in, in everything. Well, not everything, but, you know, a lot of things. Um, but we need to talk about the good times, and a lot of times the good times involve laughter. Remember when you did that silly thing, whatever it was, or remember how scared you were over something and, and it was nothing at all, like, going down a big slide at the amusement park. You know, these are things you can laugh about. They're memories. They're good memories. And I think that that's one of the things that you can do when you're, when you're helping a dying patient is to talk about the good stuff. And if regrets come up, maybe what you need is to say, too, and I never thought about it till just now, is to say, I'm sorry I didn't, and tell them, maybe I'm sorry I hurt your feelings that day. But I think that the thing to do is to really, if it's funny, it's funny. And what's wrong with laughing with someone, whether they're dying or not? There's nothing wrong with, with, with that. At least I don't think so. In your epilogue, you say, This book is to my son and friend and to all the people in the world who have loved and been loved throughout history. Writing this is a contribution that Troy and I wanted to make to other people like us whose family members and loved ones were dying no matter what the disease. That's right. Well, Everybody's going to die from something. We're going to wear out in some way, and if we don't wear out, we're going to have a disease. Now, and I will bring up AIDS again. I didn't think I would because um, I'm not ashamed of it or anything like that. It's just 
still, it's got a stigma attached, you know? Sure. But there's other uh, kinds of things that everybody dies of, and a lot of times there are things that people are embarrassed about or families are embarrassed about. Um, We we just all die of something. And the hardest thing is uh, if a person dies suddenly and we can't talk to them and tell them the things that I was fortunate enough to be able to tell Troy. Right. Well, congratulations, Terry. The title of the book, Conversations with My Son, A Diary. Tell us how to get your book. You can go to iUniverse.com. That's the best way to get it. You can also um, go into, um, you know, Borders or Barnes & Noble and and order it also. But probably the easiest way is to go to iUniverse. Um, It's also available through Amazon and Kindle and the Nook, as far as I know, um, it is. Um, and um, so I would go. I would go to iUniverse.com and and get directed from there. It's also once you, and tell your friends about it if you do like it. And it's also in the front of the book itself on the page after the title page. But it's iUniverse.com, and the I is just the letter I. Well, thank you, Terry. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, you're welcome, Steve, and thank you very much for letting me do this. The title of the book, Conversations with My Son, A Diary, and the authors, Terry Ann Fisher and Troy Michaels. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, 
Shakespeare's Revenge, and the author, John O'Shea. And John joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, John. Hi, Steve. I'm going to read a couple of things that you have written about your book just to give everyone an understanding of where we're headed. Stay with us, folks. We're not going to be quoting Shakespeare. (laughs) Of course, those of you who love Shakespeare will, you know, maybe be sad. But this is a real twist when it comes to what we generally think about Shakespeare. This is what you have written, John. Shakespeare Revenge is a thriller about a young man who stumbles onto a trail that he thinks might lead to the location of Shakespeare's original drafts. He quickly learns that Shakespeare was really a criminal banished from London and who had a plan to cause widespread damage, and that plan for revenge can still be put in motion today. Well, that is very, very different, and uh, what prompted you, motivated you to go down this road? Well, you know, it, it was the first time that I had heard of the notion that no one had ever seen a page of Shakespeare's writing with his original handwriting on it. And I don't and, think anyone uh, would believe that, you know, right at the right from the first statement like that. You'd go, well, what's that about? Yeah, and that, and that was my first question is, how could that be? And then the second question is, as a, you know, as a thriller writer, well, what if they did? Uh, you know, and that leads to the next question, well, where might that be? And how might you find it? And what if it pointed you in a direction that you weren't ready for? And, of course, by that I meant, you know, what if it tells us that Shakespeare wasn't who we thought he was? And, and what of course, if, and of course a, the, sorry, pos- ahead, the, the possibility of buried treasure here. Right. So the notion that um, any any page with Shakespeare's original writing on it, I imagine these days would sell at auction for a handsome sum. So that in and of itself is treasure, and let alone if you could find an entire manuscript or two or a significant portion of the canon. Now, why did you make Maine the place of the story? It's, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, I, I I live in and around uh, New York City and Connecticut, and um, the idea that something has been left to be discovered in New York City could happen, but along the coast of Maine, uh, much more likely. And uh, Maine is a, you know, it is a landing point for a lot of early explorers to the country. And uh, when you are trying to find hidden treasure and you want the audience in today's times to believe that it could have been in an area that was untouched all these years of the, of the country's existence, Maine makes a great backdrop. And, you know, you, you, you still have in Maine this feel of, of untouched small town, you know, innocent heritage. You can still go up to the coast of Maine and, and get the sense of a salty, you know, fishing village. Um, and you can hear it in the way that people talk up there. You know, it's very different from metropolitan areas on the, on the East Coast. And then you have the backdrop of the wilderness and uh, acres of undeveloped land. And so it, for this book, where we, where we basically have a chase across 
small town Maine, it, it feels great. I can see it on the big screen already. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears, as they say, Steve. <laughs> All right. Tell us about Tanner Cook, the main character. How was he involved? Yeah, so Tanner Cook is uh, a young, aspiring cyclist who has, uh, in the past uh, year or so, graduated from the University of Maine. And uh, unfortunately, as the story opens, uh, several months back, he was in a, uh, a terrible racing accident over in Spain. And as he's on the mend, uh, as his, his leg, which got crushed, is on the mend, he has... He needs to work, and so he's taken to helping the state clean out uh, estates of those who haven't left a will behind. And that's at the point at which we uh, he discovers in an old farmhouse, a hidden attic. And this attic was actually the, uh, the workshop of a recluse who spent a good portion of his life reading into the text of the text of Shakespeare's plays. And within there, he discovers some clues to uh, not only the hidden location of uh, Shakespeare's original works, but uh, Shakespeare's original identity. Yeah, a person who really isn't who we thought he was at all. That's right. That's right. Um, Or so... You have to read the book to find out. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, especially when you when you hear the words "criminal intent." <laughs> mm. Well, the, the, you know the fascinating thing about Shakespeare's time was um, there. It, it wasn't a large population, especially at the upper rings of society, and those likely suspects who might have been Shakespeare if it was not Shakespeare himself as the author, there is such a good degree of, of intrigue, of capability, of motivation, uh, mystery, uh, that, you know, if it was not Shakespeare who wrote his plays, there are some really juicy, mysterious characters who would, who would fill the vacuum. Especially when we know how Shakespeare probe the human condition psychologically, emotionally. Uh, he was right on the nerve center, and so he may have been just a whole lot more eccentric and, and wild than we could ever imagine. Well, you know, that's, that's the neat thing about Shakespeare, and I think partially why he's still relevant in a couple ways today. One, you know, the fact that he did tap into these timeless universal elements in in people and you know that's what his works explore so in one sense those those elements of us as you know human beings is are always going to be around the other reason i think that you know he is is highly relevant today is just as authors like myself have to fight for every eyeball and and eardrum that we can get our hands around uh for attention whether it's the internet or, um, you know, the, the fact that you can get a movie on demand anywhere, that you've got 300 cable channels, 
you know, we're, we're, we're constantly trying to battle for attention. He did, he had to do the same thing against, you know, everything from hangings to quarter, to quarterings, to cockfights, to bear fights, to brothels, gambling dens. He had to fight for an audience just like we do today. And so we're very much akin. Uh, just across generations. And, of course, the theme of murder in his stories. He loved blood. You know, he loved blood. He loved blades. He loved suicides. He loved poisoning. Um, you know, he invented a lot of words around the frame, like cold-blooded. Um, yeah, I mean, here was somebody who we don't think of as the ultimate thriller writer, but for sure. He loved it all. And... uh yeah, I, and you can just see it in the remakes of his works. Um, you know, you, you could easily slap an R rating on some of the uh, uh, of some of the remakes of his his classics. And of course, when there's buried treasure, there are others chasing the same thing. So Tanner probably has some very very dangerous competitors. Yeah, you know, one of my my favorite all time storytellers uh, is Alfred Hitchcock. And, you know, it doesn't take too long in many Alfred Hitchcock movies before somebody of such innocence and curiosity suddenly finds themselves in way over their head, you know, in an essence, a race to the end versus those, you know, surrounding him or her. And um, that's, that's, I, that has always stuck with me and I think makes for the most tense thrillers, and that's, that's a huge component of Shakespeare's revenge. So Tanner is betrayed, attacked, and left for dead, and then his brother suddenly disappears. Now, how is his brother involved in this? You know, um, sometimes when, you know, competitors, and here we're talking about violent, highly motivated, highly incented competitors, when they think that you've got the answer and they can't get a hold of you to get that answer, they'll try all forms of leverage that they can, including going after um, family members and loved ones. And, and, and that's where Tanner's only kin, his, uh, his older brother, uh, gets wrapped up in the, uh, in the mystery and the chase. And the chase also for Tanner to save his brother's life as well as to find the treasure. You know, the one thing I, I learned from listening to the likes of uh, of Steven Spielberg describe what what makes a good story is that m- most people say a story has a beginning, middle, and an end. And Steven Spielberg says, you know, some of the best stories never stop beginning. And and I think in the beginning of stories, that's where you get the best immediate bang for your buck, meaning all the stakes are raised immediately. And, uh, you know, all the stakes I try to raise immediately and then keep raising them. And, uh, you know, Tanner becomes under immediate pressure to get to the answer of who was Shakespeare. How did he come to America if he did? If he did, where, where did he go? And uh, if he brought his original manuscripts with him, where did they wind up? And the prologue is dated September 6, 1628. So, uh, you know, you jump right in at an interesting date. Why did you choose that? You know, it's, um, it's just about the time after 
which Shakespeare died. In fact, um, it's it's a little bit after the time that Shakespeare died, and uh, I think it for me it was it was a, it was delicious fun to replay for me the last moments in somebody's life um, and replay them not where they should have been in in all historical record over in Europe but over here and so uh it was a delicious taunt taunt on history right out from the beginning of of the novel and of course then we bring it immediately back to uh to to modern time but um it was fun and hopefully a great setup for uh, the unfolding story to come your research must have been so challenging you know, I, I, I'd like to say, and maybe maybe down the road I'd be able to say that this is all I do in life but write, but like many um, up-and-coming writers, uh, I do have a day job. And so uh, fitting in the research alongside normal work um, was a nice challenge. Uh, and I say nice challenge because some of the things that I had to learn about from Shakespeare to Elizabeth beef in England to uh, to poisons and uh, bicycling, cycling, and scuba diving, and the main geography, lighthouses, uh, all things that I love to learn about. And, uh, and all of it gave me a, a nice appreciation for the added depth that you, uh, that you encounter, especially around Shakespeare and his works. Well, Shakespeare... I really had fun. Shakespeare Revenge, a modern-day thriller, and who knows who Shakespeare is? He truly may be a very dangerous man. Well, let's uh, let's let everyone decide. I hope everyone gets a chance to read Shakespeare's Revenge, Steve. Thanks so much for the time. Well, tell us how to get your book. For sure. You can um, get it off of Amazon.com, iUniverse.com, or my website, JohnOshea.com. Pretty much most of the electronic uh, book sites that uh, folks would encounter. Um, so uh, I hope they do. Any closing thoughts? No, I really appreciate the time. This is uh, the, you know part of the thrill of a lifetime to be able to talk about, uh, for, for me, my first book in print. So um, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to explore it with me. We want to thank you, John, for being on iUniverse Radio. Thanks, Steve. That was John O'Shea. He is the author of his book, Shakespeare's Revenge. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.